Father, I would ask that you would help us to be reflective of where we have come from and where we are going, that we might live in a sober manner. In the times in which we live, we know that our lives are going to change in the next 10 years, and we don't know how, but we know that they are. And we would ask for wisdom and insight and to remain focused like Paul did throughout his life. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be like him. And thank you for his story in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is about Paul and the end of his life and how he finished well. And it was a good story. It wasn't a story that was lacking in any way. And he says in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. And I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now, if you remember... Paul had gone through these missionary journeys, three, some say four, and as he has gone on these journeys, he encountered problems, he had been shipwrecked, he had been stoned, left for dead, he had to flee by going over a wall of a city, and he was fleeing death all the time. And yet one unique thing about this is he suffered so much hardship for the gospel. Never once do you see him really complaining about his lot. Now, he argues with people back and forth, but he really doesn't complain about where the Lord has him. And the Apostle Paul was reflecting on his life, and he gave an account of what he had accomplished. He said he fought the good fight, he finished the race, and he kept the faith. Now, fighting the good fight means he was engaged. He was doing for the Lord. Not that it depended on his salvation, but he was just doing for the Lord. He taught and was faithful in sharing proper doctrine. He opposed those who opposed Jesus. He was always in the thick of it. Like in the opposition with the Judaizers, remember uh, the book of Galatians, it talks about that. And he argued with them and he ended up going to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, the council of the apostles was there and James spoke for the other apostles. And they say, you know, there's only a few things we wish you guys to observe and we don't want to burden the Gentiles with the law. And so he was constantly fighting the fight and he finished the race and he went wherever God led him. You don't see him complaining about that. In places he tried to go that God didn't want him to go, he, God resisted him and he turned and he went the other way. He never stopped and took a break. It, that is encouraging to me. Now, there's times where he experienced rest, but he didn't say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on sabbatical. I'm, I'm just going to take it easy for the next year. We, we never have any information like that. He knew his time was short and he just kept on going. Kind of like the old adage, um, you can rest when you die, you know, type of thing. That, that was Paul's attitude. He just went forward. And he endured to the end the hardships, like I said, without complaining. Of course, he wrote Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. And he kept up to that, at least as far as the scripture tells us about his life. And he kept the faith. He never wavered in what he believed. He was solid and what he held to as far as doctrine. And he never walked away from his responsibilities. He never said, that's it. I'm done. I'm frustrated. Why am I continuing to go on with you people? He never did that. He saw them as people that needed the gospel. They needed doctrine. They needed a shepherd. They needed help. And that was his attitude. And that was the attitude of Christ. And he was a pillar in the church. He wrote most of the New Testament. He gave that to us. That, that's just a treasure we'll never be able to do without as far as the church and its well-being is concerned. And he finished well. Now, there are scriptures that warn us against not finishing well. 
if you remember King Saul, because he was disobedient, not only him, but his sons all died in one day. And remember, he went to the witch of Endor and he called up Samuel from the dead. And that's a whole study in itself, how that took place. But because he did that and he sacrificed uh, to God when he wasn't a priest, he, he was just disobedient. Even though he was a head and shoulders above everybody else, he was a wonderful individual of a man to look at. And he was a leader. And God just said, nope, you're done. You didn't finish well. And I've been to Bet Shean in Israel where his body was hung up on a wall, him and his sons. And it was just a tragic ending. And then there were the angels in Jude, verse 6, who didn't finish well because they abandoned their original state. And possibly it is believed that these angels are the ones that gave rise to the Nephilim, the sons of God. They slept with human women. They took wives from any woman they wanted and the result of that union was the Nephilim and they were giants in the land they were men of renown the heroes of old these these angels did not fare so well they are currently locked up in the deepest part of hell called Tataru in the Greek and they're held in chains until the judgment (coughs) and then there was Demas who in the same chapter because he loved the world he abandoned Paul and he abandoned the faith. And Luke chapter 9 verse 62 says, uh, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So anyone who goes forward and says, well, you know, I think I want to go back and enjoy myself in the world like Demas did. God says, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. It, it's, you're not finishing well if you do that. And the world would say, don't focus on the end. Just pay attention to the journey. It's like life is not about the destination. It's about the journey. Have you heard that little axiom, that idiom that's out there? Don't worry about the end. We can't figure that out. Oh, no, we have figured that out. God has given us the indication of what is going to take place. And even Scripture says the world thinks like this. And 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-two says, Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's like, get it all in now and don't worry about tomorrow. And it says, bad company corrupts good morals right after that. Those people who believe that are not your friends. The people who would point to the end of life say, that is the goal. That is where we're headed. Keep your eye on the prize. Do whatever you have to do here. But keep going. Finish the race. Make sure you engage in the fight. Make sure you keep the faith. Now, Scripture, I believe, would teach us something different about this idea that it's about the destination, not about the the end time, the journey to the place you're going. Philippians 3.14 says, I press towards the mark or press towards the goal to the prize or win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul have in mind here? He's thinking about the end. The prize is salvation with God in First Corinthians nine twenty four, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. So, the benefit, the carrot at the end is the prize. Again, it is the salvation, and so the focus is not supposed to be the journey. The journey can really mess you up. It's the goal. It's the end that we're supposed to be looking at. In verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. So he knows his life is over. He has done what he is supposed to up to that time. He has not taken a sabbatical. He has pressed forth no matter what the circumstances were, no matter what the persecution was. 
And he says, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Now, if you just told this to somebody who doesn't know the Old Testament or New Testament, you say he's being poured out like a drink offering. Now, what is a drink offering? Well, there's a Jewish context and there's a Roman context for this statement. The Jewish context that first took place, Jacob at Bethel in Exodus chapter 35 verse 14, it says, Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. And so he had this drink, this wine, and he poured it out to God. Well, then in Exodus, before the Israelites had entered the promised land, they were given instruction in Exodus chapter 29, verse 38, that they were supposed to give a quarter of a hen of wine as a drink offering. Now, how much is a quarter of a hen of wine? It's 31 ounces. Now, a quart is 32 ounces. So if you get a quart of milk, that's how much it is. And he, they were instructed just to pour it out. And then also when they enter the land in Leviticus chapter 23... And they bring in a harvest. They were supposed to, along with the sacrifice from that harvest, give another drink offering, another quarter of a hen as a drink offering. You're supposed to pour it out. The wine was supposed to be poured out with part of the sacrifice that you were to offer. And so that is the Jewish context, that you sacrifice something, you give something to God as an offering. And the Roman context was every Roman meal ended with a small sacrifice, a ritual to the gods, and a cup of wine was taken and poured out before the gods. So the Romans did the same thing as the Jews did. And Paul was both a Roman and a Jew. And so both those who were Romans would have related to this and the Jews would have related to this as well. Now, what's the significance of that? He's saying, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Well, it was wine. Now, what is wine for us significant of? The wine is what we receive in communion. It represents the blood of Christ. When he says he is being poured out like an offering, he is, and by, by the way, life is in the blood. And so when he says he's being poured out like a drink offering, he is pouring out his life as a sacrifice for God. That is the metaphor that is being expressed here. And Paul was using this analogy or metaphor to say that his life was being poured out, life is in the blood, and offering one's own blood would lead to certain death. So he gave his life as an offering. Now, there's a New Testament scripture that deals with this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We're supposed to pour out ourselves just like Paul was doing this as well. Now, Jesus poured out his blood for us. And have you ever wondered, like, how much blood do we have in us? How much blood am I willing to give for this? You know, we have not ever shed any blood in resisting sin, but would you be willing to give your blood for that? And how much blood would you have to give? And have you ever given blood at the Red Cross uh, and, and let them suck the blood right out of you as it's dripping there and get your donut afterwards and go on? Well, how much blood do you actually have in you? Well, a six-foot man that weighs about 200 pounds, he has about 12 pints of blood, 12.2 to be exact by some estimations. And women, they have about nine pints of blood in them as well and if you go to like a, a jersey cow they have about 10 gallons you know you, you think about this and if you remember the sacrifices in the old testament they were sacrificing cows and rams and bullocks and 
all this blood would pour out and this comes to mind too when you pour out an offering or you sprinkle the blood all of this has taken place and there's so much richness in this you could do a study for a week on wine and blood and being poured out and the offering which is there and when solomon dedicated the temple there were thousands of animals that were killed and the blood would flow from the temple mount down into the kidron valley and it would just be flowing down there and also at the end of time there's going to be a battle the battle of armageddon where the blood is going to flow to the horse's bridle there's going to be so much destruction And God, to bring this back, God lets us know we are to offer our bodies as a sacrifice just as Paul was pouring out his body. That's so we can attain the goal. The goal is sacrifice, sacrifice for Christ. And so Paul was not so much comparing himself to Jesus, but simply stating the fact that he was giving everything freely. And by the way, when you give a drink offering, you're doing it freely of your own free will. And so are you willing to pour out your life with your own free will for Jesus Christ and what he has in store for us. Well, he goes on to say again in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, there is this principle of delayed gratification. And we don't have that too much in our society today. We want it now. When I am on my phone and maybe I'm going for a audiobook or if I'm going for a YouTube video to watch, you know, some teaching and that little dial just keeps on spinning and I and then I go to the the Wi-Fi and I turn off the Wi-Fi and I try to go to the 4G out there and it still spins, you know, and it goes what's wrong with this thing? How how come it's not giving me my instant gratification? Or the computer, you know, your computer gets old and after it gets old for a while, you have to clean out stuff and, and make sure that uh, it's operating correctly. And if it doesn't do that, you know, you're pressing the mouse and it, it's not going forward fast enough for you. And we have conditioned our society and ourselves to get this instant gratification. If you go to get a coffee at Starbucks and you have to wait more than 10 minutes. I, I was at the airport <clears throat> not too long ago, and I'm standing at the airport, and I, I'm going to Starbucks, and there's this line at Starbucks. It's going in at the airport, and I go, okay, well, I want one. I got some time. The flight doesn't leave. And I noticed that when I got up to the line, there's this young one woman, and they're calling all of these coffees, and hers is not coming through. And she walks up. She tells them my coffee isn't there, and she goes and sits back down, and I get my coffee, and everything's going well, and minutes have passed, and she still doesn't have hers. And she goes, you could tell she just about had it, and she was there about... 10, 15 minutes, I don't know. But her coffee wasn't coming through, and this means war, you know? And, and we get to this point where we want the satisfaction now. We want to see God's blessing come now. We don't want to wait for that. We want to make sure we're fully mature now. And God says, no, be patient. Endure patiently. If somebody uh, never comes up, or if no one ever comes up and gives you praise and thanks for what you do, You go, nobody ever thanks me for anything. Is that what you do? And if you're doing it for the Lord especially, nobody ever recognizes anything that I do. The Lord would say, look, I'll give you the reward for what you have done. If nobody ever thanks you for anything, you just continue. And this applies to all areas of life. 
If it's in your work, you know, maybe you've gotten all kinds of work and you have uh, jobs that you have done and completed and they're worthy of rewards and you have your I love me wall with all these plaques and medals and everything else that you have up there because you got the gratification for that. If you never get that as a believer, don't worry about that. How much of that do you think Paul got? But, you know, people came along and they prayed for Paul and they tried to encourage him, but Paul knew his lot in life was to suffer. Suffer in order that Jesus Christ might be glorified. He says, I, the only thing I want to know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Him dying is what he wanted to know. But we want to be satisfied, satiated so much, we forget that we're supposed to keep our eye on the prize. We're not supposed to worry so much about the things in this life. When we encounter difficulty and we don't get the gratification, sometimes it it besets us, it, it sets us off. The payoff is not there. And of course the payoff is the salvation of our souls, the approval of Jesus when we see him and the reward that will eventually uh, be ours that we will receive. We understand that Jesus and what he has done for us is always going to be the focus for who we are now as believers. We're supposed to work towards the end. Now, the reward of seeing Jesus face to face, but also the receiving of the reward he will hand out to all of us, that's, that's supposed to be the thing that is constantly in our minds. It's the end. It's not here. Now, as things happen to us here, you can develop the phrase, oh, well, anyway, and you just continue on. By the way, that's a meme. Something difficult comes up and a person goes, no way. Well, anyway, and they just keep on moving on. They don't get wrapped up and concerned about the things in this life. He says, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all have longed for his appearing. Now, going on with this. This idea of delayed gratification. If you went to somebody who was um, young, late teens or in their 20s, and you said, would you like Jesus to come back today? What do you think the response is going to be? Well, maybe not today. Maybe after a few things get done, then I would love for him to come back. Like, for instance, they might say, I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to grow old, but not too old. And I want to experience life. Now, I can say this because I did this. I remember being in church and I want the Lord to come back. I was excited about the end times and prophecy and revelation and the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and all of that. I go, but just let me finish out raising my kids, buying the house, having a business, doing all those things, and then it'll be wonderful. Well, there's a crown that is given to those who long for his appearing. And the young person, they don't have the benefit of age. And when you have this age uh, under your belt, so to speak, and you get older, you have the perspective of time and wisdom and experience. And if you went to a young person, you would probably say, you know, anything that you have here will pale into comparison of what God will give you in heaven. It's not even going to be close. 
It is, there's no comparison whatsoever. It's not even apples and oranges. It's like a dust mite compared to the universe. That, that's the difference it is going to be. And, and so if some uh, young individual, young man, young woman comes up and said, well, you know, I'd like to get married first. I just want to get married. I have that goal. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 27, Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. He said, You want to get married? I want to spare you marriage. I, I want to make sure that you are ready and fit for the kingdom. You desire to get married? Well, that's wonderful. God put that desire into you, but I'd like to spare you the trouble. So the person who wants to get married, I always ask him in premarital counseling, are you sure? Are you sure you want to get married? Are you sure you want to have the iron sharpening iron? You know, you're going to have arguments. You're going to have disagreements. You put two sinners together and what do you get? You get a war. That's what you're going to get if you get two sinners together. Well, what if they say... I want to have children. Well, what if your children don't turn out so well? Book of Proverbs chapter 17 verse 25 says, A foolish son brings grief to his father and bitterness to the one who bore him. There's always the possibility that your children will not turn out the way that you thought. Or you might have a child with special needs. I know of one couple who had a child that had a double cleft palate when born. What that means is there was no front of the face. There was no nose. There was no teeth. It was open all the way to the cavity in the back. And there are 40, there are more now, more than 40 operations to reconstruct the face. On top of that, there were other deformities. And the person is, is living and well, and uh, well, well as can be expected, but there continue to be medical issues and and you see that as a parent and you wish you could take the suffering of the child and this is from infancy this is from the brand new baby and and going through life like that and you can take that chance and it's wonderful to have children blessed is a man whose quiver is full the bible says and, and it's all good but what if it doesn't turn out so well and there's always that possibility well what if a person says i want to grow old but not too old Ecclesiastes, the wisest king who ever lived, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, A good name is better than fine perfume, the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the wise man's rebuke than to listen to the songs of fools. Now what this means is a life of suffering is better than a life of pleasure and abundance because it does us good on the inside. Who wants to sign it for that? No one wants to sign it for that. We live our whole lives in order to make things better and easy. At the end, we want the comfort. And how did Paul's life end? In death, being beheaded. That's how his life ended. And he knew it was coming. And so there are these crowns. And the first crown is the crown of righteousness. He says, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me, but also to 
all who have loved his appearing. So it's for those who have had a faithful and righteous life and want Jesus to appear. And will the uh, young person get that? Well, maybe, maybe not. But as we get older, do you want that? Oh, yeah. Lord Jesus, today would be a good day, you know, to come back. Then there's the incorruptible crown. Remember, there are five crowns that are available. And I told you, maybe you want to do some homework and look these up. This incorruptible crown is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. It says, everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that lasts forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. I do, no, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And that prize is an incorruptible crown. Now, remember the the, um, Olympic Games, they would get a wreath around their head, leaves, And that wasn't worth anything, but it did speak about the value and recognition of the skill and commitment and discipline, endurance and self-control and self-mastery and training. It has enabled that particular athlete to win. That's what the crown, which is really just a bunch of leaves, that's what it represents. People look at that crown and they honored the individual who had that crown. And that is the purpose of the crowns. When we get our crowns, you're not going to look at the crown and say, look how valuable this is. No, the people are going to look at you and say, look what you have done. Look how disciplined you have been. Look how you strove to make sure that you were in the race and that you were going to win it. Then there is the crown of rejoicing. First Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 19, it says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So this is a crown for those who would win souls. <clears throat> Billy Graham, <clears throat> John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, they will all have this particular crown. If you have the gift of evangelism, if you like to go out and witness, if you like to see souls saved, Greg Laurie will have this particular crown as well. Uh, You will get that crown and people will look at you and many will give that person thanks and say, thank you for giving me the gospel, for giving me the chance to respond to telling me what salvation is. And so there is a crown waiting for those who would seek to save the lives of others. Then there's the crown of life. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now in context, what this is referring to is martyrdom. Paul definitely is going to receive this crown. Those who have given their lives. And I think there's a special place for those in the future. The book of Revelation talks about that in Revelation 20 verse 4. Those who will give their lives for the sake of the gospel. They will denounce Christ. They will not take the mark of the beast. And they will get this particular crown. Now, the day in which we live, we can see the precursors, the predicates for that being set up. The, The mandates that are out there. You know, that's... That's something that is right in that vein where the rulers that be set up a system where you must comply or you die. And if you don't die, that means you complied. Unless you're on the run. 
Now, in this day and age, the next 10 years, are we going to be on the run? Are we not going to be on the run? I don't know what the future has in store, but I know that this is just a precursor for what is to come. When it actually gets here, the mark of the beast and all of that, the beast has to be here. So the things that we are seeing now are just the totalitarian views of the government being pressed upon us, and there is going to be a move in all the religious exemptions. They, I, I promise you they're eventually going to be denied. And they will be denied up until the time of the rapture, and at the rapture, nobody is really going to care except for those people who lose their lives for the sake of the gospel and not taking the mark. And where do they go? They have a special place underneath the altar in heaven. And they cry out to God, so when are we going to be justified? When are, are the people going to be paid back for this? And he, just be patient a little longer, Jesus says to them. And they're going to be the ones who come back and rule and reign with Christ just like us. So martyrdom, it's not something you sign up for. It's something that happens to you. God gives you the grace in order to do this. I think it was Polycarp in the early church that was burned at the stake for his testimony of Christ. And they were going to tie him to the stake. And he said, you don't have to do that. You don't have to tie me to the stake. And he stood up there and he was just consumed by the fires without being tied to the stake. And they said that he never cried out. Now, it is said that uh, by some it's tradition, I don't know if it's true or not, that when he finally died, the blood that spilled out, the 12 pints or whatever it was, extinguished the fire. I don't know if that is true or not, but there are the Christians in the arena uh, because they were Christians, they were thrown to the lions. Uh, it's a gruesome uh, type of death that was in the arena. But God says, because of your witness, you are going to get this crown. And all five of these crowns, we are going to look to those individuals and we are going to venerate them. And you're, you are going to have at least one crown uh, of some kind because you're saved you're going to be there and we're going to go up to each other and you go look at you oh you have done this for oh, no look at you and we're just going to give praise and honor and glory first to jesus christ and god the father and the holy spirit but then to each other well done you you did such a great job and we're going to be encouraging and all that then we get to come back here to earth for a thousand years but that's when it is going to take place then there is the crown of glory. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And this is for those who are pastors and elders, for those who have been called to ministry, who have persevered, whether in a wonderful place. Some would say, well, Hawaii. I'd like to be a pastor in Hawaii. I'm telling you, Hawaii is a dark place over there. And where you think it might be paradise, it can be, there can be the most demonic influences over a place like that. And some of the other places, like in the cities uh, in the United States or around the world, there's demonic influences everywhere. I believe there's demonic influences over our government right now, the government of the United States. And it is working, and we have to be aware of that. But then there are places where people, they just have an easy life, so to speak, ministering. They still get a crown because they answered the call. They went forward. People need to be ministered to, and no matter what kind of... Uh, church they pastor or they are an elder in they still need to be fed they still need to be checked on they still need to be cared for just like sheep and even the pastors are sheep and god will award to those pastors that particular crown the crown of glory so he goes on to make these personal remarks 
talks about desertion, opposition, and solitude. He says, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left in Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the par- parchment. So he's, he's just giving some general information about those who serve with them. Uh, Timothy also was the representative of Paul in several churches. And then he talks about the opposition. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Now, he's not complaining. He's just simply stating, beware of this guy. This guy is no good. And so you can call out those who are in opposition to the gospel and who would oppose your ministry as long as you're truly serving Jesus Christ. He says, you too should be on your guard against him because he has strongly opposed our message. Now, he's using superlatives here. This was a bad dude. He was a, I almost sound like the president. He's a bad dude, you know, corn pop or whatever. <clears throat> but he, he, he was bad. He was not good at all. And he actively sought to stop the ministry of Paul. Now, how would that play out in our day and age? Well, you can't meet in that building. You can't say these things or you can't use this hate speech. You, you can't speak against abortion. You can't speak against homosexuality. Because of that, we're going to take away your 5013C rating and you're no longer going to be tax exempt. And people will set out to actually oppose churches and Christians as individuals and see whatever they can do to stop them. You know, they, they uh, want to stop people from protesting in front of Planned Parenthood where you can't be on the sidewalk in front of the building. You have to be so many feet away. And they're just trying to suppress the truth. And by their wickedness, we know the book of Romans says people will do that. Now, he goes on to say in verse 16, at my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. So here is the apostle the author of most of the New Testament, you would think he would have an entourage with him that would just go along wherever he would go and they would precede him and they would announce the Apostle Paul, Apostle of Jesus Christ is here to speak. And he was alone so many times. And, you know, when he was arguing with the, the Greeks and it was only him, he was the only one there. And then here we find out he was all alone. Everyone deserted him. Now, if you're an apostle, where are you guys going? We're done. We're we're not going to deal with you anymore. We're out of here. And the guy goes, okay, oh, well, anyway. And he just continues on. That's what he does. What would you do? Everybody deserts you? Do you simply say, oh, well, anyway, and continue on? Or... Do you say, oh, woe is me. There is no one to help me. He was alone. No one else. An apostle of God. So this tells us something. In any form of ministry, there will always be the possibility that you might be doing it alone. Uh, This really has never bothered me uh, very much. Because I, I know that the Lord has called me. He did it by answering specific prayers. And it's like, do it no matter who is with you. And the number of people around you or someone's ministry is no indication of their success in the Lord's eyes. Paul is not done building up his reward. It's still continuing, and yet 
he was abandoned by everybody. Now, in this day and age, you would walk up to the Apostle Paul and say, where are your people? There's no people? Well, who are you? You think God is blessing you? <laughs> in God's eyes, oh, yes, God has blessed the Apostle Paul. But in the eyes of the world, oh, you have no one who's following you. So the mega churches, and I'm sure there's mega churches that are wonderful, spirit-filled, God-led, wonderful ministries, great. But that's no indication that it is blessed by God. It could be blessed by the enemy as well. And if you're alone, it doesn't mean you're cursed by God. It could mean that, no, God wants you there for a specific reason. You need this. It's like Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to buffet his body so that he would not become too prideful. So not only was he alone, but he was ailing physically. He could have said, oh, I'm done. You know, Lord, take me home now. And he wanted to be with the Lord. It's far better for him to be with the Lord than to be with the people. But he said, I'm going to stay with you guys. and I'm going to minister to you. But there were those faithful people who showed up, came in and out of his life. And so that's what inspired me. Paul just, he just kept on going no matter what the problems were, no matter what the persecutions. And the only thing that stopped him was him being killed. Now that's determination. So no matter how many people are around you or with you, it doesn't have any indication of what God is doing within that person's life. They could be immensely blessed uh, by Jesus, whether there are many or no one around them. Now, verse 17 says, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles, and all the Gentiles might hear it. As I was delivered from the lion's mouth, of course, who's the lion? Satan. He roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. And I'm sure he had his eyes on Paul. He was probably seeking after Paul, and that lion was prevented. And it says, delivered from the lion's mouth. How close are you if you're next to the lion's mouth? He is clawing you and turning you over and roaring, and it's just like, no, it's keeping the mouth away. That's where Paul was. He was right at the mouth. It wasn't like the lion's over there. He was wrestling with the forces of darkness. The lion's mouth was right there. And the Lord said, nope, a couple inches is all you get, but you can't touch him. You know, but he was still getting beat up the whole time. And it says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Can we all say Amen. Now, so no matter how difficult life might get, there's always the goal inside. Jesus promised to bring us into fellowship with him, and we can trust him with that. We simply need to fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. And there is a song that comes to mind that we used to sing back at Calvary Chapel, San Diego, back in the 80s. It's, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what is behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And we would do it in a round where the men would do it and then the women would do it. And it was just melodious. It was, that's a big technical word. It was melodious. It was wonderful to hear that. And it was all a cappella. It was great. And then he finishes out the final greeting. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trifemus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. And that's his final message 
before he was killed, before he was martyred. And he's wishing grace on others, and he knows he's going to die. It's like, can that be our attitude as well? As we are poured out like a drink offering, can we say to ourselves, grace to you? And, And there are ministries that are named that, grace to you, John MacArthur. That's what Paul was doing for others. May that be the model that we are able to emulate. Tell people, don't worry about this life. This life is a wash. You you encounter some difficulty, don't worry about it. Get up, dust yourself off, continue on the road, keep your eye on the prize.